Hello and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I'm your host, Anna Moyer. And I'm your co-host, Ariel Frame. And we are here today with Amanda Suko. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Well, welcome. And to start us off, could you tell us a little bit about your research and who you are? Yeah, so again, my name is Amanda Suko. I'm a PhD candidate at the Department of Anthropology uh, here at Western. Um, my research is actually, even though I work in the anthropology department, my research is actually focusing in archaeology, which is one of the um, uh, four subdisciplines of anthropology, if not very many people know that. Um, so the way I do things differently than my colleagues in the other three branches, branches of anthropology is that I focus on stuff and objects that people leave behind. So if you go to museums, uh, these are there's artifacts that are displayed in, um, uh, in, in, in glass windows. So those are uh, the stuff that I study primarily uh, to understand better ultimately. And this is why it makes uh, archeology span anthropology is that I'm concerned also about the people that make these artifacts. So people behind these artifacts. And so my research ultimately is concerned with how people uh, sort of exercise their knowledge, their creativity, their tradition in making objects um, such that that play into their identity as an individual and as part of a broader artisanal community as an artist uh, that creates some of these objects. And so uh, right now, as a case study, to sort of explore those kind of um, themes of identity, community, and individual with past populations, and I think that's a very important thing to emphasize, is that I'm dealing with um, people that are culturally distant and temporally distant. So I work with uh, local archaeological sites dating to the 10th to the 12th century uh, near Arcona, so not too far from London, Ontario, about 45 minutes drive northwest. Um, there's a really cool archaeological site there, and it's a cluster of sites, very tight-knit. And I'm focusing on what is called the pottery vessel. So these are ceramics. Think about, you know, your pots and pans, um, but these are made out of a very modest earthenware um, that the artisan, indigenous artisan actually created uh, around that time period. And so that is the focus of um, my research. That's really cool, Amanda. Thanks for telling us about that. I'm I'm kind of intrigued off the bat if you how you go from you know the object that you lift from the ground uh, mm -hmm. to the identity of the person who made the object. How do you make that connection? Yeah, that's really uh, it's really interesting because I also um, you know as as uh, a, a new budding archaeologist that was sort of what what I sort of struggled to wrap around. It's like looking at professional archaeologists, how exactly do people go from the object to the people? Um, and so I'm actually looking at things from the production side of artifacts. So literally sort of uh, tracing it backwards almost to kind of see the patterns in which people practice and how they make things. And so I can explain a little more about sort of the aspects of those artifacts itself that I um, analyze uh, during my analysis. Um, but um, the way we go into more people's practice is that, especially with making ceramics or pottery, um, these are pre-industrial times, right? So people are actually making these things by hand. 
um, each and every um, unique pot or a container or a vessel are were made by hand by the artisan. So it, it's more than just people making stuff. It's people's sort of knowledge on how to, you know, engage with the clay, the materials that they play out with. And so sometimes you get cool traces like people's fingerprints and you can sort of, and, and, and thumb and you can sort of place your own, I'm just talking about it and I get shivers. You place your own thumb into, into one of these molds and it just fits perfectly. And so these are more than just stuff that people, you know, um, throw away, even though at one point in time, that may be it. Um, but these are also knowledge that people um, materialize almost, right? Like they exercise it through stuff. Um, and these are knowledge that are being passed down through generations. Like if you ask me to, to make a pot in one go, like I can, it requires practice, it requires time, it requires the knowledge and how to handle these materials. Um, and also interaction with people, learning from one another, learning from the teacher, from someone who is expert in maybe um, molding the pot versus design, uh, decorating the pottery. So it is a community effort that really spending time with these people through practice, through this common um, uh, uh, kind of activities to do, that really shapes who you are as a person, just as any other forms of identity, right? The way we we're shaped by our friends, our colleagues, our friends, even within classroom setting. Um, and that happens on different, different scales, which really the complexity of people's identity and one of them, one dimension is shaped by that particular engagement with the materials that we make. So that's how we get to, to sort of the, the people aspect of it. And I guess what's exciting is then the variety that you get. You'll never know as an archaeologist what you get in your analysis. And that's up to us to... Uh, sort of figure out and, and compare and interpret. It's an interpretation. So what kind of communities have you been engaging with and, and what can you tell us about them from the, the 10th to 12th century? Yeah, so um, first of all, these uh, the, I, I should explain sort of the site and why they're uh, sort of unique to kind of contextualize uh, the archaeological site that I'm working with. Um, and so these uh, we call the, the series or cluster of sites the Arcona Cluster. Um, and so these are archaeological sites. They're really tightly knitted together within a three square kilometer space. So we don't really get this kind of context, especially in southwestern Ontario. Um, and they are contemporaneous. So uh, at one point in time, they um, were built and, and lived um, together. Uh, around the same time and there was one odd site that were uh, that was actually older so it was really um if you think about just multiple generations living within this tight community of settlements separate settlements and so um when it was dug between 1998 and 2008 took uh, about 10 years for the archaeological um work in the field to complete because it's such a um, a massive undertaking. Uh, we found a lot of different range of materials, so not just pottery. Pottery is probably only one tenth uh, of the types of materials that that we found. Um, and so this would be ancestral indigenous occupations, um, dating again to the 10th to 12th uh, century. And I like to think them as communities uh, because we really don't know the cultural affiliations with contemporary or even the, the indigenous people that were described in historical documents, um, uh, right? And so 
Um, I, all I can say is, is these are communities that were living through sort of um, social change at that time, such that we see in the pottery um, different practices from East and West. Uh, so neighboring sites um, sort of culminate in, in the pottery design, the decoration, as uh, so sort of like this interesting admixture of, of practice uh, across these cluster of sites. And so these are the communities uh, so far that um, that I've been working with um, without assigning any specific cultural um, uh, labels or, or names to, to it, because these are, again, cultures that are very distant temporally and also culturally. You'd mentioned that, uh, you know, the pottery wasn't the only thing you found there and you found all sorts of or not you, but like the people who dug it up in that time period um, yeah. found all sorts of things and some of it's pottery, some of it's other, other stuff. Uh, can you tell us, um, you know, what you might learn that's different from um, an object that is just, a, uh, you know, just, well, just for visual purposes, like made as a, as a visual art? Uh, or something that seems to have been made for like a practical purpose. Does that make a difference? Yeah, that's actually a really good question. Well, uh, to sort of illustrate um, or situate pottery amongst these range of materials, we also found um, a lot of modified bones that were made into awls. So these are bones that are made a little bit pointy and these were used to pierce through hide. So perhaps to, to stitch uh, textiles um, or leather together. So those were quite rare, but also ubiquitous uh, at the site that I'm working on right now, which is one of the largest um, village sites. So we have a couple of neighboring houses within this palisaded village. So it's got like a, a uh, a fencing around these houses. Um, and so we also found a ton of lithic materials, so stone tools that people uh, used to make for, um, I think for those, we it's safe to say for also practical reasons, um, but it really, again, um, requires knowledge to be able to create certain tools out of, you know, natural, naturally occurring materials such as um, chert or stone. Um, but pottery offers us a different insight just because it requires um, a knowledge of people where, you know, you're combining all these different kinds of materials and even the, so clay, water, temper, and temper is just the binding agent. So it's such that when you fire the pottery, it doesn't crack. Um, and so uh, pottery offers that sort of malleability for people to be a little bit more creative and even um, if you think about pottery as a blank canvas, you can, you know, be a little more creative with decoration, uh, applique, something that you apply on to make it sort of 3D. And so I think pottery offers um, that angle of creativity and the gestures that we can access that the way, you know, stone tools won't be able to um, uh, tell us is that a lot of, um, I would say imprecisions when they were decorating these things, sort of the angular um, kind of imprecisions, imperfections that you can see, sort of that's a signature of the artisan themselves um, that tells you that this is a part of, of practice is that, you know, this is a scheduling kind of thing. Maybe people are tending to other activities over at the, that long house, the other side of the long house. And so it really tells us about, um, a sliver, a portion, 
but one that we can substantiate about practice, about what is it that people do similarly or differently. Um, and when we talk about general tradition, you know, making stuff, making craft tradition, and being more innovative about, you know, coming up with new designs or coming up with new different kinds of practice and, and what kinds of uh, change that comes about as what kinds of design that comes about in this period of social change when people literally are sharing information, sharing the ways they, uh, the, the ways that they practice on how to make pottery. And so that's why it's, it's quite unique in terms of, especially thinking about production angle. Well, I'm really curious if you could tell us a little bit more about how the pottery is produced and maybe like what some of these pots would have looked like. Yeah, I wish I have, um, I actually thought about attaching a picture in that introduction uh, email, but so the pottery during this time period actually um, is, is quite varied in terms of my sense, at least at, at these sites, what was unique is that it sort of has this more creative um, decoration. So people are more sort of liberal about what they put um, at the surface of the of the pot, treating them as, a, as if it was a canvas. But this has a lot to do with how they form the pottery. So elongated necks um, that are increasingly um, uh, the case as time goes on, the neck gets longer, especially at the western side of southwestern Ontario, that's quite the practice. Um, a lot of them has just a lot of oblique uh, re uh, rep repetition, um, but what's interesting is also the decoration has been arranged in sort of bands, um, so I don't know how to illustrate this better, but um, so there is a sense that the pottery is a blank canvas and the potter has this idea of sort of breaking them into chunks that make up this nice design of a pottery as a whole. Um, so for me, as someone who looks at the decoration, I see I see these um, chunks as sort of design units that has little motifs within each zone. And, but when you look at it as, as a pot as a whole, it creates this sort of um, design that is just part of what makes a pottery for that time period, if, it, if that makes sense. And so we see both um, repeating uh, motif as well as a more hands-free, if you will, a more expressive uh, kind of um, incisions that are done onto the surface of, of the pot. But certainly there is that um, both planning in mind, but also um, attempts to improvise. And so just filling things in, in the moment kind of thing. And so that is um, uh, quite unique. Well, it sounds like these, uh, the art artisans had a really, really cool style. Uh, I wonder uh, whether their style uh, reflects other styles of other artisans uh, of the same time period elsewhere in the world? How does uh, the work you're looking at situate uh, on an international level? Um, I'm not sure on an international level, but maybe I can speak to a more regional level. So we've been talking about the site as a, as a local thing. And if we situate that local within Southwestern Ontario region, so if we think about the Arcona cluster as somewhere in the middle, so actually the sites are called 
quote unquote borderland sites because we see a combination of style that we see both in the Western uh, side. So think about Western portion of Lake Erie, um, that style uh, of pottery being uh, uh, practiced at the Arcona cluster. Also a distinctive style that is um, to the East. And so this is where people we see people uh, sort of combine their practices together within um, this site. And I guess I can speak to um, within international level, it's exciting to be talking about cultural change and, and you know, intercultural um, interaction, I guess, within a particular space in the past. And so with a lot of theoretical conversations, conceptual conversations, how do we get at this um, um, interpretation in the past? through certain conceptual lens that we share with people in sociology and, and other parts of the world um, about different kinds of archeological contexts. So I think that's, um, that's why this, these, this set of sites are, are unique. The context of it makes it possible for archeologists to be talking within similarly or differently within other contexts in other parts of the world. I think that multidisciplinary approach is really interesting. I'm kind of wondering, like, how did you decide to go into archaeological anthropology? What drew you to it? Um, so what motivates me to want to go into anthropology and archaeology specifically? Oh, man, that's quite the story. <laughs> um, yeah, so I started off actually taking anthropology as a bird course, as, as an elective, not knowing even that there's these four subdisciplines, right? So the other four subdisciplines are sociocultural. So you're typically interviewing um, extant populations, so communities that are living, uh, and you conduct interviews, understand their cultural practices that way. There's also linguistics, which, you know, um, trying to understand language, uh, lang their language within their cultural context, as well as bioarchaeology, who looks at um, biological remains, so human remains and both past and the, and the present. So forensics actually will, will fall into that. But one thing that um, really strikes me about archaeology was my opportunity to work at the Royal Ontario Museum back in uh, 2012. Um, and so during that time, that was really a lot of awe and wonder seeing the materials behind the scene, um, the materials that are not always um, displayed uh, at the front of the house, right? And so at that time, my job was as a collections manager's assistant. So I had to inventory and literally go check out artifacts, drawer by drawer, boxes after boxes, and actually make sure that they um, are inputted properly along with their archival materials. Um, that accompany these artifacts when they were donated to the ROM um, in the newly, um, I guess, polished database at that time. Um, and so I still remember one of the drawers that I took out had these chopped up sort of rods made from this bright red, beautiful soapstone. And as I was you know, doing inventory on them, I was checking them out, sort of rotating them, really studying it because they were just so, um, unique and so I realized that some of them have holes drilled um, on the side like all the way through. Uh, some are just solid blocks um, but they're all shaped the same and some were only halfway drilled through so I was like what is going on here. Uh, some are polished, some are not, some lo looking more raw 
And so um, I realized that each of these artifacts represent different stages of making an ancient bead because <laughs> some of them are, are, are just being prepared on its way to make beads. And so in another drawer, I saw what the final product looks like. And I realized that these are literally, um, you know, representing each stage of people crafting um, what will become their, their, their jewelries, I guess. And these would also be uh, pre-contact. So it would be indigenous people that made these beads as well. And so from this, well, well during that, that time, I was already in, in archaeology. Um, but I did not know what, why am I doing archaeology? Maybe it's just, you know, the, the artifacts, like I did not know what I'm, where in the world I'm going to do archaeology. Um, but from that drawer, I realized I wanted to research beyond sort of describing the artifacts themselves. Uh, but what we can say about the people, their knowledge of craft, um, what this knowledge says about, about them as people in the past, their identity sort of wanting to acknowledge their agency as well as individuals, but also where they're situated as part of a broader um, artisanal community. And so that really how, how it went and, and I kept continuing on. And that was during my undergrad actually, when I was doing my undergrad at U of T. And then I went on to do my master's at University of Waterloo um, where I get to start looking at the Arcona cluster, one of the smaller sites, and now it's big blown into a PhD project. Wow, that's really, that's uh, quite, a, quite a journey. And it's, uh, it's awesome that you found this passion in a drawer. <laughs> <laughs> Literally, like you, you'll just never know, right? And I, I, I do love my work and, and I felt really lucky to just have I don't think I, I, I ever imagined wanting to have that kind of passion for archaeology. It's sort of, that's what's interesting is that as I explore, you sort of find um, what you like doing. And archaeology is sort of a way for me to explore also um, Ontario, because I'm actually an immigrant and daughter of an immigrant. And so I was new to Ontario at that time. And so archaeology allows me to explore um, not just what Ontario looks like in the present moment, but also thinking about the the deep history uh, of of the this part of the province, um, and so it's you know it's taken me to so many places. I actually used to work in Jordan, and I give it up uh, to work in Ontario. <laughs> do, do you uh, do you find yourself you know looking at all this work and uh, wanting to? make some of your own art <laughs> do you do you, uh, oh well does anybody even if, if you don't I don't know does anybody try to recreate some of these pieces yes absolutely um so um Anna you'll be really interested to hear this because my museum of Ontario archaeology actually has pottery and clay courses um so this is when um they're not just you know grabbing clay and and get kids to do um, random techniques, but they actually uh, honor the indigenous uh, people that lived actually on uh, before it was Museum of Ontario Archaeology. It was actually a, an archaeological site beforehand. It's the Lawson site. Um, and so the um, ancient ways of doing uh, or making pottery um, are purposely um, integrated into the course. And so people are literally firing at the backyard of Museum of Ontario Archaeology in London um, 
on the like outside because that's how you know uh, how that was being practiced before without the presence of kiln or any baked oven um it was sort of this uh, semi-subterranean you really dug the ground put the pottery in and let it sort of um, bake for and hoping it doesn't crack kind of thing so yes people it's called also experimental archaeology so people attempt to recreate it hands-on right and, and that's not people like me i'm just looking at you know working backwards of what i can see but these people are um experimental archaeologists tend to try and recreate um certain things and you mentioned that um the museum of ontario archaeology for example is, is doing a lot to work i think with indigenous populations and repatriation yeah. and things like that so how do you sort of center yourself as a researcher who is not indigenous when working with indigenous materials yeah, I should, I love that question because um, as part of my PhD and increasingly so after my master's um, uh, project, I have been sort of having this sort of reflexive moment, sometimes hyper-reflexivity in terms of um, thinking about my positionality and the narratives that I come up with as non-Indigenous um, interested in, in um, Indigenous pasts. Uh, and so, for my PhD, one of the goals is not just um, how I conduct research that should be different, but also the language that I, I need to um, revise. Uh, so for a long time in archaeology, indigenous uh, pasts have been reduced into sort of cultures in terms of blobs. So any change of style, any change of stylistic design in pottery, is thought to be a, a complete replacement of certain groups of indigenous uh, people. And so that's sort of the narrative um, and the style of narrative that's been delivered through archeology span and specifically here in, in Ontario. Um, and so I want to um, work with that and, and, and um, be more attuned to again, thinking about these as people, right? As communities that were becoming and they have their own identity uh, navigating their way through the world by making the materials. And so it's important for me to acknowledge as an archeologist, I think the limitations of what we can know of indigenous past and what we cannot know. So uh, the limitations of our, of our um, uh, research as, as archeologists. Um, but I can, say that uh, for our small part in understanding the past, um, because there are multiple ways of understanding indigenous past especially, is through this production angle of focusing on really the materials. And we can say something about um, people in the past in that manner. But that is, again, a sliver of people's identity um, that I think is quite important and it articulates with uh, other ways of um, definitely identifying yourself as a person. Thanks, Amanda. Uh, it seems like you're uh, being very respectful in the work you're doing and very um, conscious about, you know, the way you're doing your research. So uh, that yeah. is like the best route <laughs> to go. Yeah, I mean, I'm not alone. Uh, I'm also very inspired by, you know, like the previous generations has, and I'm not the first generation to try and attempt to do this more reflexive work. Um, but in order for it to be meaningful, we have to touch upon these things, even though my work currently, I'm acknowledging the fact that I'm not working with any um, First Nations communities, uh, just for the purposes of um, 
how I can make it more meaningful. So maybe this can be a whole other project that I can focus on uh, in the future, hopefully. Yeah. Um, I guess, uh, you know, this is quite meaningful work to you and it might uh, spark an interest in other people who maybe didn't have a drawer that drove their passion, but a podcast episode where they heard Amanda Suko talk about her passion. So that's, that's enough for me. <laughs> so if somebody wants to find out more about what you're doing and they are on the interwebs, where can they go? Yeah, so you can find me actually at, if you Google uh, University of Waterloo Anthropology under our people, you can find my name, Amanda Suko, on the list among the list of uh, faculty members. Uh, you can also find me at the Western Anthropology website under PhD student. Well, perfect. Thank you so much for coming on today. It was so illuminating to hear you talk about all of these different facets of what Southwestern Ontario used to be like. So thank you. And thank you for fun. having me. <laughs> and this has been GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I've been your host, Anna Moyer, and my co-host was Ariel Frame. We've been speaking with Amanda Suko, and this episode was also produced by Ariel. If you would like to be involved with the show or get in contact with us, email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at gradcastradio. To listen to us, we are on Radio Western 94.9 FM. You can also find all of our episodes on our website at gradcast.ca or on podcast apps like Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Alternatively, select podcasts have been uploaded to YouTube at Gradcast Radio. Thank you for listening. Thank you for coming on, Amanda, and have a good night.